0: Chapter 7, Part 2 of The English Language by Logan Pearsall Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We now come to the Norman Conquest, which was destined to change and transform our language in so radical a manner. Of its effect on English grammar we have already spoken. Its influence on the English vocabulary was still greater but did not make itself felt for a considerable period of time. For nearly 150 years, the two languages, Anglo-Saxon and Norman French, ran side by side without mingling. French being the language of the government and the aristocracy, while English was reduced almost to the condition of a peasant's dialect. Some relics, however, of written English during the first hundred years after the conquest have been preserved, and after the year 1150, these grew somewhat more numerous, although, as we've seen, it was not till the 14th century that a standard English was established, and authors ceased to employ in writing their own local dialects. The largest class of words adopted into English Between the conquest and the year 1200 are of an ecclesiastical character and show the influence of the Norman devotion to the Church. These words in approximately chronological order are prior, chaplain, procession, nativity, cell, miracle, charity, archangel, evangelist, grace, mercy, passion, paradise, sacrament, saint, words that we may associate with the solemn abbeys and cathedral churches of Norman architecture, which were then being built in so many parts of England. The remaining words are almost all connected with government and war and architecture, court and crown, empress, legate, council, prison, robber and justice, rent in the sense of property, are the terms of government, while for military words we find tower and castle, standard, peace and treason. War, another early borrowing, is a word adopted into French from Old German. It came to us in its Norman form, but has become, with the common change of W to GU, guerre in modern French. In the 13th century, the process of borrowing went on with great rapidity, and hundreds of French words were adopted into English, which now began to assume the composite character which it has ever since retained. An analysis of these words will give some notion of the character of this period, beginning with the turbulent reign of King John, and continued during those of his son Henry III and his grandson Edward I., in the first place, we find a great accession, especially in the first half of the century, to the vocabulary of religion. The earlier of these represent Catholicism or in its formal and outward aspect. But shortly after the coming of the preaching friars to England, when the effects of the great religious revival of the continent were brought home to the villages and poor townsfolk, we find other words representing the inward and personal aspect of religious faith. Devotion, pity, patience, comfort, anguish, conscience, purity, salvation. These words we may call, not perhaps too fantastically, early Gothic words, as their introduction coincides in date with the great churches such as Salisbury Cathedral and the great monastic houses, which were then being erected in what is called the Early English period of Gothic architecture. Another religious movement of about this period, that of the Crusades, has left its mark on the English language. By the Crusades, the gulf between Europe and the Orient was again bridged, and the Eastern products and Eastern ideas began to spread over Europe. The East was from of old the home of jewels, rich dyes and splendid stuffs and among the Arabian or Persian words that came to us from this new intercourse with the Orient are terms like azure and saffron, of scarlet which was at first the name of a rich cloth and damask from the name of the town Damascus. To this period we owe also the Arabian names in our modern knowledge of two of the great staples of modern trade, cotton and sugar. And the word orange, which, like sugar, came from Sanskrit through the medium of Persian and Arabic, found its way to the west in the train of the Crusaders. Others of the Crusaders' words are assassin, Bedouin, hazard, loot, caravan and mattress from Arabian sources, miscreant and perhaps capstan of French or Provençal formation. Assassin is, like Bedouin, a plural noun meaning hashish-eaters. It was used by the crusaders for the murderers who were sent forth by the old man of the mountains to kill the Christian leaders and who were wont to intoxicate themselves with hashish or hemp before undertaking these attempts. Hazard, originally a game played with dice, has been traced to the name of a castle, Hassat or Asat, in Palestine, during the siege of which the game is said to have been invented. Miscreant, misbeliever, is a term of abuse for the Mohammedans invented by the French Crusaders. Capstan is a nautical term from Provence, and as it appears earlier in English than in French, It was perhaps borrowed at this time by English seamen at Marseille or Barcelona. These Crusaders' words, however, drifted into English at various times, for the most part long after the 13th century. Of words actually adopted at this time, the most important, after the religious terms already mentioned, are terms of law, government and war. It was in the 13th century that English law and English legal institutions began to take the form that they were destined to keep for the future and we find now in English, for the most part borrowed from the Anglo-French language of law such words as judge and judgment, inquest, assize, accuse and acquit, fine, imprison, felon, hue and cry, plea, pleader and to plead, with a number of other terms relating to property or feudal usages such as manor, heir, fief, homage. It is in this century too that the English Parliament assumed substantially its present form, and the great word Parliament makes its first appearance. The campaigns of Edward I against the Welsh and the Scotch seem to have familiarised his subjects with many military terms in the latter part of the 13th century, and it is now that battle, armour, assault, conquer and pursue are first found in the vocabulary of English. If in the 13th century the degraded and poverty-stricken English language had begun to enlarge and enrich its vocabulary with terms of religion, law, government and war, In the following century, it became a fit vehicle at last for thought, learning, and speculation, and absorbed into its texture practically all the vocabulary of medieval culture. We find, first of all, those names of exotic animals that figured so fantastically in the medieval imagination. The ostrich, the leopard, the panther, already made their appearance in the 13th century, These in the next hundred years were followed by the crocodile, the hippopotamus, the elephant, the dromedary, the rhinoceros, the camelopard, the hyena, the tiger and the pard. But with the names of these real beasts came a host of fabulous and fantastic creatures, equally real, however, to the medieval mind, the monoceros or unicorn, the siren, S-Y-R-E-N, who was half woman and half fish, the Onocentaur with the head of a man and the body of an ass, the griffin with an eagle's wings and a lion's body, the salamander which lived in flame, the fire-breathing chimera, the Basilisk or Cockatrice, which was hatched by a serpent from a cock's egg, and whose glance was fatal, the Dipsas, whose bite produced a raging thirst, and the Amphispana, a serpent with a head at either end, and even of the authentic and actually existing animals, their beliefs were almost equally fabulous. To then, the camel lion was a combination of the camel and the lion, and the camelopard had the body of a pard with a lion's head. The elephant was supposed to hide its offspring in deep water to protect it from dragons. And our phrase, Crocodiles' Tears, is due to the belief that crocodiles wept while they sated themselves on human flesh. With the knowledge of these exotic beasts and serpents came also the names of many jewels and precious stones with their supposed magical qualities. The carbuncle, which shone in the dark, the amethyst, which preserved its possessor from intoxication, the jacinth, which warded off sadness, and which with the chrysophrase was found in the heads of Ethiopian dragons, the sapphire, which gave its possessor the power of prophecy, appear in the English of the 13th century, while in the 14th are found the beryl, which preserves domestic peace, the diamond, which discovers poison, jasper, useful against fevers, and coral against enchantments, chalcedony against ghosts and drowning, and the names of other precious materials such as amber, ebony, alabaster, jet, and pearl. When, however, we examine the vocabulary of medicine, we find ourselves in a less fabulous world. The medical law of the Middle Ages was somewhat more directly founded on experience, and already in the 13th century we find such words as medicine, ointment, poison, powder, diet, physic, physician, dropsy, gout, malady, with approximately their modern and scientific meanings. This medical vocabulary is increased in the 14th century by apothecary, artery, pore, vein. The names of drugs like opium, and of diseases such as asthma, quinsy, palsy, and dysentery. But if we examine the theory of medicine on which the practice of these medieval physicians is based, we find ourselves far removed indeed from modern science. This theory is, in the main, the Greek theory of humours, which reached Europe in the 11th and 12th centuries from the great schools of Arabian medicine, According to this theory, the body of man contains four humours or liquids: blood, phlegm, yellow bile, or colour, and black bile or melancholy, the last of which is a purely imaginary substance. The excess of one of these humours might cause disease or make a man odd or fantastic, and hence we have the humours of Elizabethan drama. Our phrases, good-humoured or bad-humoured, and our modern use of humorous and humour. That the Latin word for a liquid or fluid has come to mean a mood or a quality, exciting amusement, and that we can even speak of dry humour, is due therefore to this old physiology, which has left many other marks on the English language. An examination of some of our commonest expressions will show how many of them bear the impress of medieval thought, and how great is the deposit left in the English language by the science and culture of the Middle Ages. Thus, our names for different temperaments, sanguine, phlegmatic, choleric, and melancholy, are derived from the supposed predominance in each one of the four humours. The word temperament itself, which has become so popular of late, is derived from the Latin temperamentum, meaning due mixture, and was used at first for the mixture of these humours. And the familiar word complexion, derived from the Latin complexionum, formed from the verb plectore to weave or twine, had originally the same meaning as temperament, although now it is mainly used for the appearance of the skin. As the temperament or complexion sanguine, bilious, phlegmatic or melancholy could be best observed in the face. This step from a man's physical condition to its appearance in his face was a natural one, though it requires some knowledge of medieval notions to trace the relation of the modern adjective complex and such a phrase as a fair complexion. Closely connected with the four humours were the four elementary qualities dryness and moisture, heat and cold. There were also qualities of the humours, and by their mixture produced various complexions and temperaments. Temper itself was originally a due mixture or proportion of these qualities, and this use has survived in such words as distemper and good or bad tempered. As temper was most frequently used in combination with words like ill, bad or violent, it is acquired in the 19th century in such a phrase, for instance, as an outburst of temper, the very opposite of its original meaning. For an outburst of temper would have meant an outburst of composure. And while we keep the old meaning in the phrase to keep one's temper, our other phrase, to have a temper, exactly contradicts it. Spirited, animal spirits and good spirits, are other phrases due to the physiologists of the Middle Ages who regarded the arteries as air ducts, containing ethereal fluids distinct from the blood of the veins. Of these spirits, there were supposed to be three, the animal, the vital and the natural. The animal being named after the soul or anima was the highest and controlled the brain and nerves. When animal in the 17th century became restricted in meaning to living creatures lower than man, animal spirits changed with it and came to mean the joy of life we share with animals. Phrases such as cold-blooded, in cold or hot blood, or my blood boils, due also to the old view derived from the sensations of the face that the blood is heated by excitement, while an immense number of words and phrases, hearty, heartless, to take to heart, to learn by heart and cordial from the Latin word for heart, are due to the old belief that the heart was the seat of the intellect, the soul, and feelings. So to hypochondriacal, and its modern abbreviation hipped to us from the medieval belief that the region of the hypochondria containing the liver, spleen, etc was the seat of the melancholy humour another medical error is embodied in the old word rheumatic as rheumatism was believed to be a deflection of room to the affected part and there is a reminiscence of medieval psychology to be found in common sense the common sense being a supposed internal sense, acting as a common bond or centre for the five external senses. The 13th century word lunatic is evidence of the early belief that mental health was affected by the changes of the moon, while the adjectives jovial, saturnine, mercurial are due, of course, to the astrological belief that men owed their temperaments to the planets under which they were born. Indeed, the large deposit left by medieval astrology in the English language is a sufficient proof of the great part that celestial phenomena and the supposed influence of the stars on the affairs of men played in the imaginative life of the Middle Ages. Influence itself, derived from the Latin influere to flow in, was at first a term of astrology, and meant the emanation from the stars to men of an ethereal fluid Which affected their characters and fates. And our modern word influenza embodies the old belief that epidemics were caused by astral influence. Disaster and ill starred need no explanation. Ascendant, predominant, conjunction, and opposition are other words of astrology. Aspect meant originally the way the planets look down on the earth, and men derived their dispositions from the dispositions or situations of their native planets. Even our current word motor has descended to earth from the heavens, for it was first used to describe the primus motor, or primum mobile, the imaginary tenth sphere added by the Arabian philosopher Avicenna to the nine spheres of the Greeks. Amalgam alembic alkali arsenic tartar, are alchemists words which made their first English appearance in the 14th century quintessence which appears a little later was another alchemist's term describing the imaginary fifth essence added by Aristotle to the four earth air fire water of the early Greek philosophers the 14th century word test and the later alcohol are also terms of alchemy Alcohol meant originally a fine powder. The test is derived through testum from the Latin word tester, an earthen vessel or pot, which through ancient slang has become tête, the French word for head. It was used by the alchemists to describe the metal vessel in which they made their alloys. From such a phrase as Shakespeare's tested gold has arisen the verb to test, which is now commonly used in England, although it was regarded as an Americanism not many years ago. The names of the seven liberal sciences of medieval teaching, the arts of the universities, grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, music, astronomy, were early adopted into English from the Latin in which they were taught, and with them came in the 13th and 14th centuries a number of terms of learning and culture, such as melody, rhyme, comedy, tragedy, theatre, philosophy and history. These words, belonging as they do to the culminating period of the Middle Ages, may be associated with the rich and decorated forms into which Gothic architecture flowered at about the same period. The learning and science of the Middle Ages, or at least that part of it which was assimilated during the 13th and 14th centuries into English thought, can be perhaps as fairly estimated by the lists of these learned borrowings as by any other method. Some of them were no doubt mere inkhorn terms and had no current use at the time, outside the books in which they are found. The greater part appear, however, in the works of popular writers like Chaucer and Gower, And so must have become familiar to the educated contemporaries of the poets. An etymological analysis, moreover, of this vocabulary of medieval culture will show with surprising accuracy the sources from which that culture was derived and the channels through which it passed on its way to England. We find in the first place that practically all these words were borrowed from the French, and that the French borrowed them from the Latin, and that, with the exception of some Arabian words, the ultimate source of almost all of them was Greek. They represent, indeed, the wrecks and fragments of Greek learning which had been absorbed into Roman civilization, and which, after the destruction of the classical world, were handed on through the Dark Ages from compilation to compilation, growing dimmer and more obscure more overlaid with errors and fantastic notions in this process of stale reproduction. Such as it was, however, this body of learning, derived for the most part from abridgments of Aristotle, was not questioned. Medieval science was based not on the observation of nature, but on the study of the ancients. And a writer of natural history in this period felt it necessary to quote the authority of Aristotle in support of so elementary a statement as that eggs are hardened by heat or hatched by the brooding of their female parents. In the 13th century, however, this body of learning had been much increased by a great accession from Arabian sources. We have already mentioned the effect of the first contact during the Crusades between East and West, By means of the peaceful intercourse which followed, Europe drew immense profit from the high culture of the civilised Arabs, who in the East, or in Spain, kept the torch of learning alight, while Europe was still enveloped in comparative darkness. The Arabs had preserved, through Syriac versions, the works of Aristotle, and much of the astronomical and medical learning of ancient Greece. In the 13th century, This body of learning reached Europe by means of translations from Arabic into Latin. This accession of knowledge from Eastern sources accounts for the greater part of the Arabic words adopted into English. Zero, almanac, algebra, cipher, azimuth, nadir, zenith, alembic, alkali, camphor, alcohol, amber are Arabian words. Alchemy, alembic, and perhaps amalgam are Greek words given an Arabic shape by passing through that language. The rest of this early vocabulary comes in the main, as has been said, from Greek sources. The names of jewels and precious materials of animals, real or imaginary, are Greek. Pard and sapphire, and perhaps tiger, ebony, beryl and jasper, are words early borrowed by the Greeks from Oriental languages. Alabaster and ammoniac, and perhaps alchemy, came to Greece from Egyptian sources, while ostrich is a hybrid word formed in popular Latin from the Latin avis and struthion, the Greek name for ostrich. The medical vocabulary is for the most part Greek, and the Latin medical words are in the main translations from Greek. The vocabulary of astronomy is more largely Latin, but almost all these words also are direct translations from Greek and are no proof of additions made by the Romans to this science. Save in war, politics, law and agriculture, the practical and unimaginative Romans made few or no additions to culture, and the study of languages, as well as other studies, leads us sooner or later back to Greece to the art and thought of that small and ancient people from which almost all that is highest in our civilization descends. There is, however, one more department of medieval thought which, owing to its effect on English, life and language, must be by no means omitted in this hasty survey. This is the study of logic, which more than any other subject absorbed the intellectual energies of the Middle Ages, Philosophy was, in a sense, the passion of the 13th century in Europe, when scholasticism formed the mould of thought, which lasted till the revival of learning. About scholasticism, with its quibbles and quiddities, there still lingers much of the ridicule poured on it at the Renaissance, and this is no place to do justice to this great medieval effort to understand the metaphysical basis of thought and to reconcile reason and the Christian faith, can only be said that there can be no more pervasive, permanent and important influence on civilization than metaphysical discussion, barren and abstract and fruitless, as it at first appears. In the scholastic disputes of the Middle Ages, habits of accurate reasoning were formed. The internet... Was trained to deal with abstract ideas, and terms were borrowed or coined for their expression. Preachers, educated not in secluded monasteries but in secular universities, visited or took up their residence in English villages, and through their sermons familiarized their hearers with at least some of the great abstractions and distinctions of Aristotelian thought. By this means, and by means of the lawyers, and of Wycliffe's popular writings, a great part of the scholastic terminology was absorbed into the English language. Indeed, our present vocabulary of philosophic terms is very largely a production of scholasticism, and owes its admirable clearness and definiteness to the hard thinking of these old logicians. And already in the 13th and 14th centuries, we find in English writing such words as Accident, Absolute, Apprehension, Attribute, Cause, Essence, Existence, Matter and Form, Quality and Quantity, General and Special, Object and Subject, Particular and Universal, Substance, Intelligence and Intellect. Medieval philosophy, like the rest of medieval learning, can make no great claims to originality, its basis was the Aristotelian logic, and its vocabulary, although almost entirely Latin, was formed for the most part by the literal translation into Latin of Aristotelian terms. It cannot, however, be said that scholasticism made no contributions to human thought. The distinction, for instance, between free will and determinism was not clearly defined in Greek philosophy, but was fully developed by the medieval philosophers and theologians. Predestination is a word first found in St Augustine, and free will is an English translation of the Latin phrase of a church father. By means, moreover, of the disputations and the subtle distinctions of the scholastic logicians, much that was latent or obscure in Greek philosophy was brought into greater clearness, and a large number of words were formed in Low Latin to express these conceptions and distinctions. Entity and identity, majority and minority, duration, existence, ideal, individual, real and reality, intuition, object, motive, tendency, predicate are among the words that English owes to late, not to classical Latin. Our word premise or premises, is a term of logic, which came into use originally as the translation into Latin of an Arabic word meaning put before. From the premises of a syllogism, it acquired a legal meaning and used for the aforesaid in legal documents, it soon was applied to the aforesaid houses, lands or tenements mentioned in the premises of the deed and so acquired its present use of a house with its grounds and other appurtenances. Whenever indeed a large number of new words, however learned and abstract their character, make their appearance in a language, the genius of popular speech is sure to appropriate some of them in its own illogical and often absurd way to its own practical uses. We are all familiar with the horn of a dilemma, Though few of us trace it to the argumentum cornutum of scholastic argument, quiddity is a scholastic word, and perhaps quandary also, and even the modern locomotive is formed from the medieval translation of a phrase of Aristotle. Species, one of the great words of scholastic logic, was soon appropriated in the early form of spice by the medieval druggists, describe the four kinds of ingredients in which they traded saffron cloves cinnamon and nutmegs but the main agents in the distribution of these words were the lawyers of the middle ages scholastic words and scholastic distinctions found their way into anglo-french and then into english while as yet there was little science and no popular science professor maitland writes the lawyer mediated between the abstract Latin logic of the schoolmen and the concrete needs and homely talk of gross unschooled mankind. Law was the point where life and logic met. End quote. If, therefore, we were to study the history of almost any of the great terms of ancient or medieval philosophy and trace all the varied and often remote uses to which it has been applied, we should be able to observe the effect of the drifting down into the popular consciousness of the definitions of high and abstract thought. We should find that many of our commonest notions and most obvious distinctions were by no means as simple and as self-evident as we think them now, but were the result of severe intellectual struggles carried on through hundreds of years and that some of the words we put to the most trivial uses are tools fashioned long ago by old philosophers, theologians and lawyers, and sharpened on the whetstone of each other's brains. End of section 12